Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore the fascinating life of Evelyn Underhill. I know she's probably somebody you haven't heard of, but she's especially important to me because her book on mysticism, published in 1911, was really my first awakening to the importance of the lives of the great medieval mystics. Once again, I'm pleased to have as my guest my good friend James Tunney, author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, and The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, as well as many other books. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Uh, it's great to see you, Jeff, and I'm glad to see you looking hale and hearty. We'll be talking about Evelyn Underhill, and to my estimation, most of our viewers will have no idea who she is. Evelyn Underhill is one of the foremost writers on uh, mysticism. She is essentially a writer, but she became a very holy person, if you like, or, or in, although she lived an ordinary life in many senses. She was very dedicated to the application of mysticism uh, in her life and to communicate the nature of mysticism to, uh, to the world. Later on in her career, she uh, wrote more about the devotional aspects of religion, but she's known for her great work in 1911 on mysticism. And that came in the context, uh, it came as a result of some previous works. For example, there was a work on Christian mysticism in 1899 by William Ng or Inge. And, of course, we had William James, 1902, The Varieties of Religious Experience, and that, in fact, encouraged her. She wanted to, to add to, to, to some of the things she didn't think was right in that. But as well as that, she's, she was a poet, she was an editor, she was a, a novelist, she wrote 39 books, uh, hundreds of articles, she was a renowned spiritual teacher. So she began to be really a writer on spiritual uh, direction uh, and a spiritual director, in, if you like, in a spiritual therapeutic way, uh, as well as contributing towards debates on theology and uh, the, the Anglicanism uh, and religion in general. So, uh, but the, the title, the subtitle to our book on mysticism refers to spiritual consciousness. And I believe that that is her great contribution, that at a time, uh, particularly in the first decade of the 20th century, when we had the rise of futurism, when we had a very strong Nietzschean view of the death of God, when, of course, Bolshevism grew up in London in the first decade of the 20th century. So she was aware of this great, and, and of course, the great attack from the, what would become what I termed the empire of scientism. She saw all these factors. And I believe that 
she was really trying to, in some way, protect consciousness itself and, and spiritual consciousness. And so she's, she's really important, not just for the wide variety of, of her work, but as a writer too. And she would have influenced many writers like T.S. Eliot, Eliot uh, C.S. Lewis, and I'm familiar with other ones. So she's a, a significant figure. And of course, at that stage, she was pioneering as, as a woman in domains that women hadn't been allowed into. As an example of that, as I recall, she was given the, I don't know what, the authority from the Anglican Church to teach mysticism to uh, their ministers. That's right. She is, so she was accepted as a, a learned uh, a person in, in this domain. And she, she her, throughout her life, later on in particular, she gave multiple retreats on spirituality to help people. She had loads of people writing to her. She changed their lives. But she also educated uh, the priests uh, in the Anglican Church. And she did so because there was this been this great debate in Anglicanism about where it's going and its direction. And one of the things that she emphasized was the fundamental and foundational aspect of mysticism in, in all religion. And that's also in a deeper, she, in, in many senses, she reflects what Suravardi was, was talking about, that we're not only talking about texts in a revelationary sense, but knowledge itself in an epistemological sense is based on insight. And this, this is a fundamental uh, alteration in many people's mindset. But she believed in that. So she was trying to infuse this sense by returning to medieval Catholic, in particular mystics, and informing, uh, informing present practice or contemporary practice uh, with the, the messages from their experience. And I gather she came from what you might think of as an unlikely social background, upper class British, lived in London, and uh, I believe her father and her husband were barristers, so she was a, a barrister's wife. That's right. You have to be careful careful with barristers, Jeffrey. But that's right. She came from a very a legal background, and uh, as, you, as you've indicated. And her first book was actually a book about poetry and the law. So she must have heard a lot of debates, legal debates around the dinner table. And her role in many senses with her husband would be to facilitate, I suppose, dinner or the social arrangements that were customary at the time. So she would have met a lot of people and she would have played a particular uh, role in that. And they were, they were, I think it was John Cleese said that he was brought up uh, Protestant, uh, and that meant he didn't believe anything, if, if I remember it correctly. But it's referring to a kind of latitudinarian idea, a very lax idea of where what religion was, and particularly when we have the state involved in the system. It was seen to be part of a ceremonial element for many people. So in, in, when she comes to write follow-up, follows uh, follow-ups to uh, her book on mysticism, she's she writes a book on practical mysticism, and it sounds to me like she's trying to address her skeptical, uh, the skeptical audience she would have. But what it does give her, in my view, bearing in mind that her her relations wrote books about maritime law, she was interested in yachting, uh, as her family was, 
and her husband was very into yachting. He was uh, sounded like a very uh, mundane orientated uh, man interested in those things. Uh, so she would have had to persuade them about what she was doing. And she has, as a result of that, I believe, a great ability to synthesize arguments. And the, the element of clarity in her work is, is very, very important. So when she makes a statement, you might gloss over it as, as a kind of uh, a statement of no import, but there's a lot of truth in it. She can, she can really crystallize and condense complex analysis and put them in a very clear and cogent uh, context, which I, I believe came from her background. And yes, she would have probably had values associated with empire and uh, about the, the place of religion. Uh, they would have been there. But in, in her spiritual development, she looks very much towards uh, Catholicism. Uh, uh, in the context of that scepticism. And also, w one last point, uh, although the, for example, her husband didn't want her to convert to Catholicism, and there is a degree of anti-Catholicism that we must factor into the equation, but it doesn't mean that they were against the significance of uh, esoteric practices. In fact, most of that class would have had associations, whether they were Freemasons, Rosicrucians, there was a whole load of secret societies that had a very deep and colourful ritualistic element to them. And I believe, in fact, that one of the reasons why this type of magic grew up in Britain was precisely because the Reformation had stripped all the colour out of the uh, religious practice. And this was a kind of substitute. They began to look more to Egypt. They began to look back to the traditional sources and to recreate modern forms of ceremonial worship in a way. And I gather she had a lot of exposure to organizations such as the Golden Dawn, which was very active during her lifetime. Yes. Uh, so uh, she, she starts off and she's a kind of, she's not really into religion. She has that uh, kind of ceremonial sense in the background, the social sense. And she's, she, she begins to go through a, a, a period of growth and uh, from her agnosticism, she becomes interested in the occult and magic. And again, this was very, very important around that era. And in many senses, it's a reaction to the growth of the scientific method, the empire of science, scientism. The, in fact, the man, William Ing, or Ing, who wrote the book on Christian mysticism, he was also a eugenicist. So some of these, some of these strange... Uh, concatenations and views comes together. So she was resisting all that. She was she believed in spiritual consciousness, and she went through a period of exploration. So she would have come in at a later stage in the, the Golden Dawn, at a stage where there was a bifurcation between the pure magicians, and I think Yeats would have been more in that, and Crowley would have been in that, although they, they had split earlier on. It was branching into different dimensions. And she was on the mystical side. So she would have allied with people like A.E. Waite. And he, he is, of course, remembered by people in the Rider Waite tarot deck uh, and the woman who, who designed that, although, although he gets the credit for it. Um, so she was allied to that and, and she had she was closely allied to people like Arthur Macken. And he was he would be a person that Stephen King, for example, looks back to as a, a precursor of strange occult horror type novel. So she was also very much into art and, and aesthetics, and, and that was uh, important in her 
in, in, in her efflorescence. And, and then she, she, she moves back into more orthodox, uh, orthodox religious devotion afterwards. Now, I know we've brought her name up in previous interviews, in particular with regard to her novels, because they show a deep knowledge of uh, certain ceremonial magical practices. Yeah, it's clear if you read The Grey World. Well, The Grey World starts off and it has elements of reincarnation and what happens in, in, in the next world and moving into that. It's very, very interesting. And The Grey World, in my view... Uh, summarizes or indicates, I suppose, what Surawardi would have called the plane of ghosts, an area which the mystic is not interested in, actually, that you go through that area, which is interesting. And then she wrote The Lost Word, which has a kind of Freemasonic uh, dimension to it about building. And in there we have the advent of a figure that became important for her, though it doesn't come up much in her writings, is the Virgin Mary. And this, this was uh, a book she wrote uh, in 1907. She had also written a book about uh, old, if you like, fairy tales, folk tales about the Virgin Mary that used to be important in Europe. And she wrote that in 1906. I think that was a turning point for her. And in the last book, The Column of Dust, it's quite clear that she had, uh, she was either very, very familiar with the text, but she would have been familiar with the processes of conjuring. And that is a starting point, a woman in the basement of the bookshop where she works exploring this uh, this other world and what happens in that concert. So it's very, very clear. And it's also a kind of a warning sign as well. There's a warning dimension that, that may have informed her shift that it, it's a cautionary note about messing around with some of these things and the unpredictable element to it. And the person, the protagonist, performs this ceremony in the basement of a bookshop, as far as I remember, which which I, I, I'm imagining is the uh, the Watkins bookshop, which is still there in London near near uh, the centre, um, because the other later magic shops weren't there at the time. Uh, but but this this division is important for her, and it's important for anyone wanting to understand the difference between magic and mysticism, which she talks about in her books. And you also mentioned in passing earlier, she wanted to convert to Catholicism, and her husband stood against it. Yeah, it, it's difficult to identify the exact, because of course people may not always tell the exact reason, but she had a kind of mystical experience. She went on a retreat in, in I think it was February 1907. Now, in my mind, she had been disposed towards, more disposed towards Catholicism. She had, be, she had a, a long amount or a big amount of trips to the continent, to Italy, and she was very impressed with Italy and with the Catholic heritage and buildings, architecture, mystics, and she had informed herself. And I think in 1906, the Virgin Mary element had had had, had tipped her, had tipped her. In 19, and so in February, she went on a retreat, and she believed she was going to convert to uh, Catholicism. She had a kind of profound sense. I think it was a, Fran a Franciscan, a Franciscan. Um, retreat, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but she was always interested in the Franciscans independently of that. And uh, she she was getting married that year to her husband. Now she didn't get married till she was 32. Uh, the uh, it was it, it's common in that context for a barrister to take a while to build up his reputation and to earn the money that would be able to support the wife. So there were childhood friends. And then she says she's going to convert, and he was against that. The specific reason usually given is that he didn't want her to confess 
her, her soul to some other uh, person. Although confession is not as important as far as I can see in the Anglican tradition, although it's there, but they don't have the same, the same commitment in some senses as in Catholicism, although there's a lot of debate about that. You won't see as many confessional boxes, for example. But, so I'm not sure that that was the reason, because it is there. It may not have been in his head. I, I think there, there, there's a general idea. Um, we also, Catholicism was associated with the immigrant Irish, the rebellious Irish, uh, and, and there was the ongoing... Uh, struggles with Ireland. So I think there was a number of different co contexts where a person who was concerned about the status may have not wanted her to join, or not wanted her to alter. And she's criticized by feminists for for adhering, if you like, to the wishes of of, um, of her husband in some in a number of contexts. And um, but but we we all have to make accommodations as we think. But he, well, he didn't he didn't forbid her. He asked her to think about it for a year, and she she never uh, she never came back to 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 take up that. At the same time, I gather that she developed, you'd have to call it something like a, uh, a master-disciple relationship, practically, with a, a German nobleman who was a practicing Catholic. Yes, but that, the relationship didn't flower in the context of a mentor-student relationship until much later. What happened was that that she began to have a communication with a lot of people after she wrote uh, mysticism. And at the time uh, of uh, she wrote mysticism, because Baron von Hugel was a, a, a Catholic, he was a, a modernist, but he was very interested in mysticism. And he himself had written a book about the mystical experience of Christianity, and particularly uh, focusing on Catherine of Genoa in 1908. So he, he was quite an expert. The Baron von Hugel, the relationship uh, didn't, uh, didn't flower till after the first first world war she worked she was patriotic she took part in in uh, she worked for the admiral admiralty and then she had some kind of breakdown in some sense and she realized that something was missing and it was from the in the early 20s that that close relationship of mentor studentship uh, came in where where he began to direct her if you like uh, you know on a mutually a mutual agreement between the uh, between the two I think it's fascinating that her husband, who uh, didn't want her to convert to Catholicism, seemed quite comfortable with this relationship. I, I don't think he would have been bothered with with, with that. Uh, the uh, yes, he didn't seem there doesn't seem to be any antagonism in that context. Maybe all that mattered for him was about the whether she was Anglican uh, or not, and he wasn't concerned about that. And he realized. Uh, the Baron von Hugel lived up in Hampstead, uh, and he realized that this was a, a significant figure, an educated figure, an erudite uh, man. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any, there would any be any great issue there, and it doesn't seem to have been. And Evelyn Underhill was drawing on these figures. I mean, the, clearly you can see the relationship with the prior art in, in her work. But he didn't. He thought that she was focusing too much on disembodied mysticism, removed from an institutional context. And he, he saw, he, he, a dialogue happened. She also had a dialogue with with T. S. Eliot. Uh, she she initiated a dialogue with uh, C. S. Lewis uh, because, and she was also quite feisty, if you like, in her communication. So they had they had great respect for her. So so the inklings. And the, the, the figures which came along, Tolkien, 
and C.S. Lewis. Charles Williams was close to her and edited her letters. She influenced them. Uh, so uh, there's a number of, of, of different dimensions to her. Well, let's talk about her book on mysticism. As I recall, uh, one of the unique features of it is that she identified stages in the mystical path. What she does is she draws on the previous literature and then she... She, she identifies a number of stages. Now, these stages are not, not new. She adds a little bit, but it's in, the, it's in the prior literature. So the starting, she identifies a process by looking at the exemplars of the great mystics. And in particular, she looks at the Catholic uh, mystics. Now, this would be no different from uh, what Michael Murphy did when he's looking at the tradition, because there's a lot of evidence there. And she, she's trying to ident identify typologies. And she's also very aware of psychology. So she's trying to identify uh, patterns in, in, in the process. So she, she solidifies it into five, a, st a five stage process. So the first process is some kind of awakening. Now that could be through a mystical event or it could be through a gradual process where the person begins to open up to another world, to the idea that what we're seeing is not the real world. So there's a real world with a capital R behind it and that's reality. And this is what all mystics, mystics have said throughout the ages. So in, uh, in, in that context, the awakening might be sudden, uh, it might be slow, it might be a near-death ex, it could be any, any, any context where there's some kind of intervention, intervention and the doors of perception are cleansed, if you like, and the individual begins to realize that there is something else and they feel they want to explore that. So that, that's the first stage. And we're familiar with that. It could be a dream. Uh, it could be anything. Now, there's a whole, people don't have to move on from there, but the, the, mystics, um, the mystics do. Because this, this is an effective, uh, affective uh, dom domain to this awakening, the person begins to change, and they begin to look at themselves. And there is a process of relinquishing of attachments there's a pro process which she calls purgation. So purgation is that cleansing sense, and it's a letting go. It's a letting go of old ideas, of things that don't work, of things that get in the way of this greater reality. And that's a, a, that's a, classic, a, a classic process that people are familiar with uh, in, in all traditions. In, in Native American theology as well, we can see that in, in, the, in fasting processes or use of pain or sweat lodge or whatever. It, it's a necessary stage in preparation. The third stage is the process of illumination. And this could be uh, a series of opening up to this reality where it becomes more interactive. It could be, for some people, a, a sense of audition, of hearing things, of seeing things. Uh, it's, it's associated with uh, the development of extra powers, of extra realizations, of uh, a penetration into the reality. So we get the sense of a, a loop beginning between the person and this higher reality. So it's not one-way process, it's, it's, it's coming back into the person. And this idea of a circle of light, for example, is what how Thomas Traherne, the great metaphysical poet, described it. It's the idea that you're opening up to a process that informs you and cleanses you and that you're part of and that you take part of. 
so illumination can mean can manifest itself in a whole range of forms for different people it could be through persistent dreams or whatever but the person realizes that what they took for reality the mundane world is not what it seems to be and that the important element the element which they feel comfortable comfortable in is associated with this reality with a capital R. Later on, she describes in terms when she's talking about God of spirit with a cap or with a small s and a capital S for the the big force out there. So there's a sense of presence and there's a sense of of opening up and it could me it manifests in different ways again in different typologies. For some people, it's a sense of a sense of moving, a loving relationship with a greater force. For other people, it's a sense of clarity, a manifest in a sense of clarity. So this is not just a, an individual idiosyncratic uh, sense. It's a sense of uh, the person begins to change. There's a transformative element uh, about it. The fourth stage is the dark night of the soul. And this obviously refers back to uh, John of the Cross. And she takes uh, she takes from that idea now, there's a lot of literature on what that means. In popular parlance, it means just when you're having a bad time. But in the mystical, in the mystical uh, journey, it means the specific stages. It could refer to the earlier stage of purgation, when in a bodily sense, you're, you're releasing attachments. But there's also an element whereby one becomes attached to the experience of mysticism, to the pleasurable effects. And there's a sense that one has to not become attached to the experiential element of that as well. And there's a sense that uh, one is near to the, the force and there's a sense of loss. There's a sense that having tasted this honey, that maybe you won't get it again. There's a sense of darkness. And this is also, this is a sense of, again, a sense of purgation where there's a relinquishing of deeper egoic elements uh, and a breaking down of that thing, but also a deep sense of despair. Uh, so it doesn't it's not nice so the the elements of the previous illumination uh, doesn't make it easier for the people going through that process and then in the final stage it's the unitive state the idea that the person in some way uh, enters into either in a particular context or in a more general sense a union or a possibility of cohabitation with this greater reality where it becomes part of their ordinary life where as she says sometimes it's like a lower you, you live in the lower floor floor of a, a house and the upper floor is associated with the divine force you have the two elements so uh, it can be more dramatic if you're looking at Teresa of Avila and that it's a it's a literal union with the higher force although I don't think we one should focus too much on the on the really uh, high examples because it gives a false impression and the only thing I would add to her stages is that I think uh, in many senses we should think of them as recurrent because I, I, I don't think that the, I think the stages can recur again and again in a spiral way. And in fact, she wrote a book uh, f following the mysticism book. She wrote a book called The Mystic Way and she also wrote a book called The Spiral Way, which was she wrote under a pseudonym. Um, so she was interested in, in that idea. But they're, they're the five stages and they, 
they map quite well onto the ideas of mysticism. And what what she was distinct, what was she, she was criticizing a bit in William James was that William James was focusing on mystical experiences. Now, I, I don't think the criticism is well deserved in many senses because he's only describing in the scientific terms of evidence that that's there so he wasn't purporting to give a he was talking about religious experience he wasn't talking about uh, the continuous commitment that mystics have um, so she was saying that he wasn't really understanding or she believed that he wasn't understanding the deeper element the the the, the context of commitment and I, to go through those stages i think it requires the people to go through a some committed process and which which to uh, emerge from there and and from that one very important point so she distinguishes this is not magic and she's very clear because she knows what magic is and the result of that is not a person floating around in the ether who is uh, disengaged from society that's not the result the, the the consequence of this is the person comes back into society with a renewed and refreshed and reinvigorated sense of what is real and is so clear about what they want to do and so motivated that they can achieve great things so she she impresses upon people the functionality uh, of this mindset and that that i think is corroborated by uh, Abraham Maslow and and his idea of self-actualization and the fact that this was the link between he found it in reverse look at look at people that achieve things and what was the what was the link so it corroborates the psychological or the the, the psychological literature corroborates the, this process in many senses. Well, I gather that she was also unlike many teachers of mysticism these days not particularly big on meditation and uh, or and related practices what she criticized that's correct what she criticized was quietism and i'm very sympathetic towards this critique myself jeff now it's very very important that people can attain relaxed states they can they can open up if you like they can achieve control of the mind and body that that's critical that's there in all the traditions but she was uh, concerned with the idea that you solely seek a m mystical endeavor in order to get this kind of relaxed quiet distancing self and there's a lot of there's a lot of current and contemporary practices which purely focus on that she believes that that was going nowhere that in the mystical traditions that there had to be direction, uh, and that, that, that's a key word in my sense, that it had to be directed towards the higher force, which for her uh, was God. Now, a person that came into my mind in this context, and one of your previous conversations with uh, your mentor, Arthur uh, M. Young, uh, and when he was talking about the significance of direction and steering, uh, if you remember when he's talking about a higher, there's a higher level thing that people are not focusing on, which is the steering element. And he, he, he sees that as a 90 degree rela angle relationship to the other force. And he uses the examples of his helicopter steering mechanism. And, and this is the element of direction. It's not about the process, not about the helicopter. It's where it's going and how it's managed. And there's a similar process. She believes if you're in just in this quiet state, in this relaxed state, you're, you and you don't know where you're going, well, then you're opening yourself up to the gray world. You're opening yourself up to all these entities that she believed exist because of her experience with magic. She believed that they were not in the supernatural world, but in a natural order. So this is like the distinction um, 
that you talked about recently between the supernatural uh, and the the natural in, in in one of your talks and she believed that that world was actually the natural world and that we confuse that with the the higher force which she would identify with with divine consciousness and she was also open to uh, vedanta she worked with uh, Rabin, Rabindra uh, Tagore on translating a hundred poems of Kabir, and she was in her, her book, The Mystical Way, shows her knowledge of uh, Indian uh, thinking as well, which was, of course, part of the empire like Ireland was uh, at that stage. So, yeah, she didn't like that. But what she did emphasize was contemplation, which is the traditional Christian approach that you. And another word that she uses is uh, theopathetic. You're focusing on God. And she was imaginative in the way that she used the existing literature. Uh, she wrote a book, for example, uh, on the Our Father called Abba, uh, which is, it just takes the, the words and uses it as a basis for meditation. She believed in many senses, like the Buddhists do in, in some traditions and some practices, you had to focus on on something. And if you weren't focusing on, on the other thing, you were you weren't you weren't building that connection. You were going in in, in a, a small smaller loop. So she didn't she didn't fancy that that quietism. She also seemed to have taken a rather antagonistic attitude towards her previous interest in ceremonial magic. When she went through whatever whatever uh, change she went through. She began to understand what magic was and what the difference between them. And it's a difficult thing. And I remember when I was researching and trying to trying to get the, the clear boundary line between them, that she was one of the best people to, to describe it. And this is another notion. I see her often on that foreshore that I've talked about before. Some other people describe her as being in the borderlands. She's a classic figure for me on the foreshore. So she's been... She's seen what magic is and she knows what mysticism is and she knows what the difference between them. She, she's able to navigate uh, that, that foreshore. Um, she, wasn't, she, she wrote a, a, an essay in defense of magic, although it wasn't in defense of magic necessarily uh, in 1907. She, was very, she, she wasn't uh, criticizing the abilities of it or the functionality of it. She was criticizing the uses of it. So what she saw was that magic was about will and knowledge and will and knowledge was associated with control. So that, that creates a loop again back to the ego. And she would have been familiar with, what, with, with the directions that Alistair Crowley, etc., went to. So she would have exemplars very close by that she would have known about. And, and, and the split in the Golden Dawn was about this commitment to mysticism. And so mysticism goes back really to Plotinus. She was very interested in Plotinus. She wrote a book on Plotinus. In fact, Neo, uh, Neoplatonism was one of our, our kind of early loves. So this goes back to, to, to that idea which foreshadowed a type of magic that was associated with uh, Hermeticism and in particular during the Renaissance, which is called divine light magic. So she doesn't talk too much about that, but that's the kind of mysticism they were going they were going for so it was it was rejecting ceremonial magic it wasn't interested in natural magic it was it was it believed that mysticism was about the highest form of magic that there was uh, but and she would have no interest then in 
ceremonial magic. And she was also, in relation to spiritualism as well, uh, she didn't believe that it went anywhere, for example. That, that, so, so, so she's not necessarily criticizing for what they're doing. She's criticizing the direction, again, the end, the ultimate objective. So it would seem as if, let's take the, the Mass, which is practiced by both the Catholics and the Anglicans. That's a magical ritual, but it's often been described as different from uh, other esoteric traditions in that it's more like theurgy, the idea of invoking the you know ultimate divine principle rather than uh, one might say playing around with the astral plane residence. Yes, one of the best people on the nature of uh, what's happening in in the mass is is Carl Jung, who was who was very aware of the deep significance of the rituals in the traditional mass. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have had the same regard for for more modern mass or, or the post Vatican II masses, I believe, and I don't think Evelyn Underhill would have either. But he understood that the mass, as it had evolved, embodied a lot of the previous uh, magical ideas: the idea of consumption of the body of the god, and the, the idea of, of of taking it into your own body. Uh, but there's a bit a, a difference in some senses, in the communal aspect and the individual aspect. And there is a bit of a problem that Evelyn Underhill sees in relation to the failure of the church to inculcate that individual element, that in the mass element of it, that the individual may go through in a purely ritualistic way, which without actually getting the benefit of the proper mystical element. So, of course, rituals are meant to invoke and assist, but in many senses, they work for her because she knew how to participate in, in these things. She had the mental skills in order to appreciate and in order to operate in that domain. Um, so, it, it, can, can, it is still very powerful, the Latin rite mass, in, 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 done in a traditional way, and it can open up those doors of perception particularly if there's music involved, uh, and it could, it can uh, invoke mystical reaction as well, which the old form would have done so. So th there's a fine balance. So there's no doubt that there's magic in the, uh, what's conceived as magic in the Catholic Mass. It would be more consistent with that the divine light uh, idea uh, in, in, in my view. Uh, and she believed that mysticism was for everybody and in all religions. So she would obviously be sympathetic, I suppose, to uh, Sufism. And, uh, and she has written about that. The idea that the mystical element brings something. And in many senses, she would fit into the discussion about traditionalism. She, she, she's not, it's not the conservative element. It's the tradition is important. The tradition is important because it embodies and encapsulates and crystallizes rituals which mean something, which are transcendent, which evolved over time, which are agreed, which are universal. Uh, it's a bit like, I don't, I don't want to make a, a bad analogy, but the idea of standardization and business fa uh, format franchising, the idea of the standard is that you go into one place and it's the same as, as somewhere else, and it's the standard is, is, the, key, is, is the key element. But there's no question there was magic, but it's embedded magic and it's in a community. So she moved from 
kind of emphasized individual mysticism to an idea, and this was the influence of Baron von Hugel that, that, that you indicated, to an idea that it had to be in a community. So that's why in, in about 1921, she comes back to the Anglican Church and, and throws herself headlong into that uh, in particular. Well, what would you say, looking back, is the thing that we should remember her most for? If you look, and you know this well, Jeff, from, from, from your awareness of the state of knowledge about consciousness, and you have talked to Barnard uh, Bar uh, Bears about, about this, about uh, what happened around, around this period, when she wrote her, her book in, in 1911. This was coming up to uh, uh, Watson and his uh, uh, communications about and his articles about uh, behaviorism. And as you talked about, from that period, for the next few decades, behaviorism took over in the study of consciousness. So it wasn't until later on uh, we had people like Huxley and then come to your book and the uh, you you started in in the early seventies uh, on the roots of consciousness. Uh, so when you're writing your book, you're quite original in that sense because consciousness wasn't so much uh, in, in in the radar in that comprehensive sense that you uh, approached it. Uh, and the idea was that everything was driven by behavioral form, and uh, that was manifested as well in cybernetics, in particular after the Second World War. And the idea that we look to animals and we look to systems and systems theory and the individual is just a behavioral mechanism that we can manage mathematically, predict, uh, predict and there's no other dimension to them. So when she wrote her book on about spiritual consciousness, she was really holding a torch up for the idea that we are greater uh, than animals, that we are greater than machines, that the knowledge that is available to us the seer, the consciousness uh, within us is more powerful, that it's uh, epistemologically stronger than other forms of knowledge, which is a quite a claim to make. And by focusing on the spirit, and she did so in, in later books as well, a book called The Golden Sequence, for, for example, she explains in simple terms this this idea that you're a spirit and there's a great spirit out there. It's it's It could easily be consistent with Native American theology, uh, it's the same idea. And our job is to reunite, to connect with this living spirit, which is, is, is a, real, a real source. So there was a, a barren patch after her, after her book, but many people um, like Thomas Merton, uh, for example, would have been influenced by this particular book. It would have informed the next generation, when they began to look back and say there's something wrong with this materialist paradigm, there's something wrong with this behaviorist paradigm. So she's criticized for being associated with the church and being uh, doing ordinary things with the church and helping people on an individual level. And now the tendency is to want the church to be a force for social justice and social action. The problem is that this, uh, the figures in the church is declining associated with that because what she would say is that the vertical element is, has disappeared, that its transcendence is the, is the key part, that we can be as flat as we want 
and that we can compress God into the world, but then we're falling into the trap of seeing everything in material material terms. She believed that it was necessary for us to maintain this connection. So I think she's very, very important as one of the people that kept alight the flame of the significance of individual consciousness, of taking that seriously, of taking that as the fundamental value, and of taking, uh, of protecting the spirit. And in that sense, she is more important than her contribution towards the Anglican Church. She's more, she is, she makes a huge commitment in, in historical terms, I, I would say, to the protection and uh, inculcation of values associated with the spirit as a lived reality and to try and help people to bring it into their own lives. And we're going to have to do so more and more as the institutions crumble, because if she was alive today, she would see that in Europe, a lot of the, the, the Christian institutions are declining rapidly and the institutions are not going to be able to, to hold the spiritual uh, torches. Uh, and there's a great danger that we face a, that a very potent materialist control system, which doesn't accept that spirit is there. Again, people like uh, Yuval Noah Harari saying there is no such thing as spirit. It's not there. You won't find it. And uh, she would have fought against that in, in, in a pacific way. Um, uh, and she, she deserves a lot of credit. By the end of her life, she dies in 1941 when the bombs, bombs are dropping uh, in London. She's a pacifist, so she has changed. And she, she doesn't believe that you can fight evil with evil. So she's significant in, in, in that context as well. So she's demonstrating the, the, the transcendent nature of, uh, of her views. So she should be remembered by people of all spiritual traditions and they should uh, they will be inspired if they look at her work in relation to how you take things that seem dead, that seem vacuum packed by religion, where they've sucked all the spirit out of the thing and just left uh, something, a straitjacket that you can't move in. That she, she's, she sees it as a living force. We all have this force. And that's the great hope that we, we begin to understand. All this stuff about mysticism is about realizing that you are it, you have it, you have the capacity, you have this intelligence in you, which is greater than computational intelligence, which is capable in some strange way of linking to create greater reality and is, is, is necessary to give us direction. So, uh, and that's that's a key element uh, in her practice, and also in her co in her commitment to to God. So, so she might say, for example, if you're just just a mystic, and you just want the experience, well, then you're going nowhere. There has to be some concentration on the divine uh, consciousness, on the the Brahmanic uh, element, on, on that grander element, which is. Uh, encapsulates all the other sets, which is higher than all the other sets, which can't be known uh, by subsets, which the mathematical theories of incompleteness point towards uh, as as something which we'll never be able to work out rationally. And I think I think her work um, was in many in many senses intended to transcend time. And last point, she was very important. Uh, she was very powerful on prayer, and. Uh, she believed that prayer 
was bringing you beyond time and space in some way. And I believe that her work, to tie into the, the discussion you had with Charles Upton uh, and the uh, idea in Islam about art, which is non-sacred and it's, it's pointless in some sense, she dedicated her work towards that sacred, uh, towards that sacred element, toward, to, to, to making it useful. She wasn't part of the, uh, the aesthetic movement, art for art's sake. She was trying to create a, a, a full construct. So we have to see our life in a kind of gestalt way, uh, look at our poetry as informing other things, her novels as a part of the message, and her life practice and doing things and being active uh, as important and I think she's an exemplar, exemplar uh, to men and women of whatever fates and she would emphasize that every individual at home whether they're a householder or whatever uh, they have the power to uh, get in touch with greater reality and the, where you start in some senses is by looking at the history looking at the, uh, the experience looking at the models that we have from the, the, the former trajectories. So I, I think she, she, she's a shining figure in that sense, and I have a lot of uh, respect for her, and I think she her, her, her message will kind of uh, persist um, for, for a long time. Well, I can say for myself, I was 22 years old when I first encountered her book on mysticism, and I think in, in some way it was a template for me that, has guided my life for more than half a century. Yes, I, I remember you talking about her, and I remember you, or as you have said and described about your initial skepticism and then your transformation, and then you, you're looking at, at the important sources. And there is no doubt that she had an encyclopedic knowledge of, of many, many mystics, many systems, uh, including the, the Greek philosophical systems. Uh, and also, she had a great knowledge of European medieval uh, Catholic mysticism. Uh, for example, there is a great source in the uh, monastery at Saint Vic Victor or Saint, uh, Saint Victor in in Paris, where we had people um, like Hugh and Richard and, and Godfrey were the monks who wrote books like the Mystic Ark, for example, which, in my view. Uh, some of these books anticipated what Carl Jung did by hundreds of years, and she was aware of them. And she was aware of. She wrote a book on uh, Roy's book, the the Flemish mystic, and she she wrote a book on uh, Jacopone the Todi, uh, who was a, a Francis a Franciscan who came after Saint Francis. And these are not well known figures; they weren't well known figures. And Tauler was another German mystic, and she. She had translations made from the German of uh, some of the original materials, so she was a uh, she was leading the way, and she also had friendship with I think it was Herbert in the British Museum that gave her access to uh, to important uh, documents. So she brought in a lot of disparate sources that are not so they're not on the radar screen and began to enable people to see the trajectory. So that when you come to Right, the, uh, the thing that impressed me about the roots of consciousness was its comprehensiveness, that you're open to all different uh, types and uh, cosmopolitan in your viewpoint, which I think is correct and consistent with any idea of the pre perennial philosophy. And A.E. Waith, uh, for example, in his idea of magic and mysticism, he believed that there was a secret tradition 
which was underneath the, all of the different mystical or magical traditions. And I, I believe this is right about that in, in the sense that there's a uh, w what we're talking about is an inherent system within us that it, it's written into us. Uh, whether you want to call it evolved, inspired, it doesn't matter. That there is this process. And what these people are doing is showing us this process. So when you're going back to find the sources, you have to go back to similar sources. You have to engage in these things because that's the tradition of mysticism. That's the tradition of, ex of proper exploration of consciousness, which is non-reductive, which is comprehensive. It doesn't, it doesn't dismiss those other elements, but it's not the central preoccupation of the explorations of consciousness over the millennia. And uh, uh, I, 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 find, I, I, get, I was surprised every time I look back at it because I noticed something else, some other little nugget of information when I look back at, at her book, something that I missed before. And I think there's, there's probably a good book to be written by someone, I'm not going to do it, on the type, typologies of mystics within her book on mysticism. She, she's quite, she does it again and again saying, well, there's this type and there's this type. And it helps clarify um, differences where... Uh, you might be uh, a particular, for example, there, there is in some context of uh, illumination. I thought of you uh, in relation to her work. She describes the person who becomes very, very joyful. And I know you get criticized by uh, some people because they say, how can he be so happy all the time? And they don't like it because they're not happy all the time and they want you to be as miserable as them, I presume. But they, they don't realize that that's a genuine uh, in our motivation and this is one type of mystic this is one type of experience to the higher reality that one is joyful uh, all the time so actually that type is there it's predicted you know it, it, it's 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 not just jeffrey mishlove it's a recurrent element of a certain persona who has opened themselves up uh, to wider consciousness uh, or, or clarity or the person who focuses on making things clear seeing things simply is another consequence so uh, I, I think there's there's uh, it, it has clearly been important for you me and for anyone that's interested in, in mysticism and for other people like huxley c.s lewis the inklings i mean it, it, she had a big influence uh, and it, it's accessible a lot of her books are out of copyright now so if you know they're, they're freely available in many senses so there's no problem with accessibility for people that don't have money even to uh, these days um so she 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 is a living a, a, a living force in in that context and she's a great uh, advocate for for mysticism and people might say oh she's a bit too christian she was looking at the greatest tradition there and and she's a anglo-catholic anglican so she's she, she's still protestant so she's gone outside her, her, her domain by referring back, although some of the Anglo-Catholics would believe that they were part of their tradition, which fair enough. Uh, but she also looks at uh, at Indian uh, mysticism and particularly through her, her work with uh, Kabir and was aware of uh, a whole range of traditions. So she is a, a, a universal figure and emphasizing again for, for people that say, well, what is, what is the relevance of this? Uh, it, it, it's It's... It's a way, a kind of psychological, if you want. Uh, it's a way of integration, reintegration, of finding out who we are, of coming back to the inherent power within our nature, uh, which can't be defeated by reductionist analysis, which shouldn't be, which shouldn't be 
reduced by ideas of the selfish gene or the selfish generation and which which asks us to move towards a higher plane because we're too easily compartmentalized we're too easily divided we're too easily fallen into the trap of believing that it's all about the mortal and the mundane and if we can find this higher space if we can move into that higher space we can begin to find the zone of accommodation where we can respect other traditions we can allow people to have different views we don't have to fall out with them uh, but it's only on that higher higher dimension in all traditions uh, which is uh, noetic which is revelatory which is accessible to the still quiet spirit uh, which is seeking for a higher force that we can find those that space that, that we we so much need and if, uh, if we don't if we don't find that space we're, we're in trouble well, James, for me, this interview is an example of the spiral process that you alluded to earlier, because when I first read her books, I had no idea about her personality, her marriage, the historical uh, context in which she wrote, her own religious background. So this adds so much more life to me about uh, what was really a very seminal period in in my own life. So, uh, once again, it's been a joy to be with you. It's always a learning experience. I'm uh, so delighted that we're continuing these ongoing conversations. And of course, I look forward to the next one. Can I get a final point to give me a, a minute? <laughs> okay. Two final points that came into my, my head that are relevant. One is about our notion of agency, which is important because when you're talking in psychological terms, uh, you talk about agency coming from the individual. In legal terms, agency demands a principle. There has to be someone the agent is working on behalf of. So it's an interesting idea about the person who is mystical succumbing or, or submitting to a, uh, to a higher force. And there was one point when I was thinking about her that came into my mind, and it was about, it was about the famous incident, I think it was in 1968, when a man walked into the Galton Laboratories at UCL in London, around the area that we've talked about, behind the British Museum, beside Russell Square. And he said that he had, they thought he was a tramp or something, and they, he said he had the formula for, uh, the mathematical formula for the solution and exp explanation of altruism. Uh, and that's, that, of course, was George Price, and he contributed towards that debate about where does altruism come from uh, and that occurred in an area that she was familiar with in an area that we, we've talked about before and George Price uh, although he, he he sought to elaborate on the existing ideas the evolutionary ideas of altruism he began to get worried after that that he couldn't answer he had, he had, he had mystical experiences and he began to realize that mathematics wouldn't answer the issue and he began to give away he gave away all his is is uh, his belongings uh, to down and out in the area around that we've talked about in relation to the esoteric geography of London in the same area Russell Square around there that's right and Euston and and he, he's buried in the same place that Mary Shelley used to go to, to to see her mother's grave it's a funny thing but there's something in that in that message for me again about not taking this evolutionary reductionist materialist idea uh, beyond its its utility and that failing to see 
spirituality and the nature of consciousness is is, is something that the price I think was indicating and something he realized afterwards but something that Evelyn Underhill had had uh, realized sorry for going on I just wanted to get that point thanks very much as always it's a great pleasure talking to you and I know about your your love of the figure so it's been very rewarding I apologize if I brought you around in circles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you should bring up a man named Price because he's pointing to the price we pay when we ignore these deep mystical truths that are basically the uh, bedrock of everybody's life. Beautifully put. That's a, that's a great way to end it. Well, once again, James, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.